Did you know that it takes on average eight years to diagnose endometriosis? When you have excruciating pain every single month, you experience bloating and other symptoms, and you might keep seeing a doctor and not getting the answers, it can be extremely frustrating, especially if going to see OBGYN gives you anxiety or perhaps you had a bad experience previously. Well, on today's episode, I have Dr. Matilda Weber, who is an OBGYN practicing in Europe, and she herself also has endometriosis, and she understands exactly what you're going through. On this episode, we discussed how the care that OBGYN provides to women is getting so much better, how she herself manages her endometriosis, combining not just Western medicine, but also natural solutions. And we're also going to answer some of the very frequently asked questions that I get about endo. So without further ado, let's dive in. You're listening to Feel Better, Be Better, a podcast that helps women like you understand your female body better, balance your hormones naturally, and develop a healthy mindset. I'm your host, Dinara. I'm a certified women's health coach and a TEDx speaker, and I'm on a mission to help you make sense of your health. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Feel Better, Be Better. Today, I have an OBGYN. I have Dr. Matilda Weber, and we're going to talk about women's health. We're going to talk about endometriosis. We're going to talk about some of her own journey. And before we get going, it actually was very interesting how we ended up coming across each other. I recently hosted a challenge called Five Days to Boost Your Energy. And Matilda was one of those people that joined it. And we started to talk more and more. And I've realized that we actually know each other through my partner's friends. And it was just just the synergies that we had was so amazing. And Matilda is based in Lisbon, and she hosts a series of events to bring awareness to women's health and to really help women understand their bodies. And I'm very excited because we're going to be doing co-joined on one of the events in Lisbon on December either 15th, 16th. And if that's something, if that's where you're at in the world, and if you're interested, please do reach out to me because we always want to spread this message to as many women as possible. Without further ado, hi, Matilda. Hi, Nara. So good to have you on. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So one of the things that I'd like to do with uh, people that I invite on is just to get an idea for your story. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to become interested in women's health and then take on a full profession of a doctor and maybe a little bit about your personal health journey. I remember recently that it's quite a long journey because as a teenager, I wanted to be a pediatrician when I started medicine. But then I ended up seeing some deliveries in benign in okay. Africa because I was at humanitarian mission to do vaccinations and prevention. And that's when I saw my first deliveries. And that, that's how I was amazed by nature and how, like, the beauty of giving birth and also the adrenaline of it. So that's yeah. when my journey started. And so then I did a few internships as a med student to check if the speciality was, I was interested in, even in France, not only in humanitarian missions. Mm-hmm. And so in 2013, I started my residency for five years in France in uh, OBGYN. Oh, and wow. So, yeah, I, and 
I, in my personal journey as well, I always was interested into like justice, social justice, inequality, and it's so abnormal that like the health is like, there is a gap, there is a gender gap in health and that's mm-hmm. have to change. We can do better. That's incredible. When you talk about this sort of the gap and the stuff that you learned, what are the, some of the obvious things that you notice? What is the massive difference? What are some of the massive gaps? It has been shown recently that a lot of studies are actually based on men's health and we discovered it pretty recently. So that's one of the craziest parts. Some health issues, we don't even learn about it in a feminine way. Mm-hmm. And also on the symptoms, for example, for heart attack, it's not the same symptoms because of differences in the women bodies and like the hormones. So like the symptoms are not even the same and we're not really trained to diagnose this properly. That's crazy to me. And then when I was during my residency, there started to have a lot of women started to free the speech about uh, the OBGYN violence. Wow. Yeah. Like, and everyone was super surprised and telling, no, we're not violent. But I was like, yeah, maybe we can just think about it for a minute. And one, we all thought about like one of our chief, one of professor who actually wasn't nice, wasn't explaining very well, wasn't caring about like being kind to patients and all that stuff. So we all had one bad example in our minds. So I was like, yeah, we can question. And we can also be like, everyone can be violent when you don't think about it because we are tired. We are not enough doctors. And so sometimes we don't take the time to actually explain what we do. And I would say also that we are not very well trained as well in France to like psychology. I think I had a lot to do by myself. It's challenging, but I think I had a lot to learn by myself on this aspect. So when you talk about violence, does that mean is this like invasive? I think about pap tests and like how you have to do the pap tests and you kind of get in and you have to open your legs and then they put this massive thing. And so obviously very often without any warnings. So it's just, it's quite painful. When you refer to that and going through your training, is that sort of the stuff that you mean? Yeah, I mean, a lot of practice we do in gynecology can be painful. And so we have to warn mm-hmm. and be the softest we can be. Yeah. And if the patient asks us to stop, we have to stop. But a lot of doctors actually in this patriarchal system, they don't really ask permission, ask consent. That mm-hmm. something that... I had to learn. And I remember when I was starting my training, I was saying, okay, I will insert the speculum. But now I'm always like, can I insert the speculum? And it's just like, really like, it's just very different. And that's a lot for a lot of women just to like feel that they are listened to and that they can actually give their consent and that you have to stop whenever they want you to stop. Like sometimes it takes a little bit of time to do the exam and it's okay. Wow. I've actually never heard it specifically discussed from discussed from that part. I have heard a lot about gaslighting in the medical industry, specifically when women show up with certain issues and we usually tell them must be stress, maybe have a glass of wine, maybe relax when actually there is underlying things. Do you see a lot of that still quite present? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's also one part of the violence of domination, patriarchal society that just think that when a woman have an issue, it doesn't worth looking for it. Just probably that she's crazy or that anything. And like a lot of yeah, and it brings us to like the topic of endometriosis, obviously, because it's meantime is seven years to actually have a diagnosis. It's hard, not that hard, like. You cannot say every woman who faints during periods that it's normal to have pain during periods. There is this very idea of like women suffering in silence, don't take space in the public space and like being crazy when they complain. That's how society is built. So that's not a surprise that it's the same in actually medicine where you are in the position of power when you're a doctor because you have the knowledge that uh, the person in front of you doesn't have so you are in a position of power so it's mm-hmm. actually not a surprise that this patriarchal society applies in medicine yeah that's really interesting and is there anything that's obviously your training is done in france and now you're in lisbon and primarily in europe is there anything that's being done about it right now is there like awareness that's raising is there things that are actually happening or is it just the fact that we're at the stage of this awareness I would say that thanks to social media not everything yeah. is bad about it like yeah. a lot of Awareness is brought thanks to it. So there is a lot of accounts talking about violences, taking witnessing from women. For example, in in France, there is one called Stop Drug, VOG, and mm-hmm. it's like talking about all the patients, what they experience. It can be around birth, but also in a medical practice. Anywhere in France, anyone can give them witnessing, and they are actually taking action against the the doctor being really violent and really kind of mm-hmm. raping. I don't really like to use this word, but sometimes yeah. no, and you're still continuing to do Like it's in yeah. your intimacy. It's really the same mechanism, actually. It's like domination mechanism. Yeah. And also I've read an article in Portuguese. It's actually the problem here is probably around the same as in France. And yeah. so there. Journalists taking the lead and speaking about it. So there is awareness in press and socials. And I also think that the new generation, thanks to all this awareness, are better trained, actually. Like when I talked to med students when I was working Mm at hospital in France, I was really pleasantly surprised to see that new generation is coming for us. And my generation is making changes and it takes time to unlearn stuff we learn and stuff like this but like the new students arriving they already don't want to do like a vaginal exam without consent they already don't want to do it several times just to train they prefer to train over like fake stuff and like mannequins yeah i have a lot of hope thanks to this new generation of doctors coming as well Yeah, and I love that you brought social media because obviously a lot of my work is built on social media and of course the sort of the project that you have on your own that we're going to talk about and it just brings so much awareness and there is of course two sides of the coin to all the things. There is social media with compare and despair and all this stuff but then there is this really powerful place of bringing awareness and I think if there is one thing that benefits from it is certainly women's health and even since I started doing my work a few years ago I can just see so many women are talking about 
hormones, about periods, it's becoming more and more normality that at some point we'll just make it a commodity where it'll be just a normal thing. But of course, it's going to have to go through some changes, which is really interesting. You sort of alluded to it, but I want to go back to it. Is the um, is to talk about endometriosis. I know that you have your own personal story with it. I want to talk a little bit about deeper more, but would you tell us a bit about how long you've been struggling with it and what are the things that you have done? What are things have been useful? What was your journey with endo? As a lot of patients, I had really painful period when I started it. So I started PL at a really young age of like 17 or that to release the pain, but not really trying to, like the, the gyno at that time, don't really try to diagnose anything. It's just like it's normal to have pain during your period. So I was mm-hmm. on the people for super long. Uh, and uh, I always thought I had, I because I had a lot of digestive trouble, which now I know it's probably due to endometriosis because yeah. the symptoms of endometriosis are actually the inflammation it creates in your belly and the pain. It's not only during periods. It's also sometimes at any time of the cycle. It can be like really any moments. So I always thought I had it, but I didn't pay too much attention about it because the period were okay with the pain. So I was, yeah, it was okay. And then for, yeah, I had the IUD, a copper IUD, which like retrospectively wasn't a good idea for me because I actually have anything about like nutrition and all that kind of help. So I just had the heavier period, really bad, cramp and so all I did was taking systematically some anti-inflammatory pills and some pills to reduce the flow and I I think it probably made it a little bit worse so and it was also a stressful period of my life so I think my gynecologist shouldn't have agreed to to put an IUD mm-hmm. me because like she knew obviously that I took the pill because of period pain and it wasn't even still a little bit painful with the pill, so mm-hmm. it wasn't a good idea for me. But anyway, I tried it. <laughs> and so I get back to be like, it was just a year on stuff. So I'm basically under a pill since I'm like 17 and I'm 35 now. And it's managed the symptoms most more or less, but I would say it doesn't really work on the digestive part. And so lately, because I want to bring more holistic practice and like I want to uh, build bridges between all different types of medicine and stop having such a Western approach of my practice. Actually, in endometriosis, because now we all agree to say it's a general disease. It can have a lot of effects on your mental health, on your belly, on there, there is so many different symptoms that you can experience. And uh, so I'm trying different type of medicine at the moment. I'm trying uh, naturopathia with vitamins and mm-hmm. I'm trying acupuncture. I'm doing more exercise, more yoga to also um, work about pelvic floor. Also, I have less stress in my life because I'm yeah. in Lisbon and I don't have a a full-time job, really tiring that I had before. So for all of these reasons, I worked on all the different fields I could work on. I yeah. didn't, I, 
everything yet, but at the moment it's like really better. Like I don't have that much bloating. I don't have that much diarrhea. I don't have that much constipation that I had before. And I am actually surprised because I learned to live with it. I was like, yeah, okay. Like every three to seven days, I have like really bad bloating and then really bad cramps. And like, sometimes I even stopped breathing because of the pain. It happened like at least once or twice a month that I had to stop breathing to make the pain pass. And that doesn't happen anymore thanks to all of these. So I, I guess it's a full journey, but now that awareness is brought about endometriosis, I recommend to all my patients to try different things, different things, and all together, like a synergy to work on every aspect of your life that can help with endometriosis. Yeah, which is why I'm so passionate about holistic health, specifically when it comes to to treating female body. I think it's probably obviously the same for male body, but it's the female body that I'm more interested in. And it's the stress, just how much it contrib- contributes to inflammation. Just endometriosis is that disease of inflammation. Like you will have those diarrheas and actually by mistake, diagnosing yourself with IPS, obviously the treatment would be so much different, but actually understanding and bringing all of those different modalities into one form, just you are a perfect example as an OBGYN, not just doing the classic treatment and being on the pill, but actually trying other things. Just amazing. Yeah, because actually I noticed that it wasn't normal. I just was so used to this that I didn't think. And now that I don't have all these symptoms, I'm like, like it's too quiet. Something <laughs> weird. <laughs> like I have so such a good health. It's not normal. <laughs> You're like, how am I not so good? How can I feel so good? I never felt so good. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> I love that. What would you say were some of your biggest changes to, from the sort of Chinese medicine, holistic medicine perspective? What were you, was there any specific diet that you've taken, any particular supplements that you've taken? So about the diet first, I mm-hmm. wanted to eat more omega-3. Amazing. Good. Yeah. Adding a lot of chia seeds or lean seeds to my diets too. Lean and seeds, black seeds, by the way, for those of you, because I, I have to buy them in France and I always look for them and I'm like, ah, that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, black seeds are brilliant. And I try to eat less gluten. There is no impact maybe on like decreasing the lesions, but apparently two thirds of women who actually exclude gluten, better digestive health afterwards. Yeah. Gluten and dairies. I mm-hmm. really there is. I'm French, obviously, so I like my cheese. cheese. Not that good for like inflammation in your body. So I'm trying to lower. I don't stop it fully, but I'm trying to use different uh, sources of carbs. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to use only without lactose milk. I'm taking more fresh cheese and not that much the hard one. And for the supplements at the moment, I'm taking B6. Chaseberry, D, A2, vitamins, a lot of different plants as well, and magnesium, obviously, because it helps release also the stress and like the inflammation. That's really interesting. And I'm not so much asking for those that are listening, maybe struggling with endo, that they copy it, but more so just to understanding that this is the sort of stuff that you played with. And some of the minerals that you mentioned are certainly very important, specifically for inflammation. And I do want to mention the gluten and dairy part because 
I'm not of I'm not a fan of just completely taking out foods out of your bodies because it's just so it can create damaging relationship with food. It can create this fear around food. And it's just so and, and it's kind of like taking out the joy of life sometimes when you take out the things that you really love. But it's also, again, finding that moderation. And I think with gluten, like for all of the autoimmune disease, usually the gluten is the first thing that tends to be taken out because unfortunately the gluten in wheat really does trigger that inflammation. And interestingly, actually in Italy, there's the highest number of celiacs. And it's unfortunately, it is true that gluten for some people might not work. So if you are experiencing those issues, I would recommend you take it out for a couple of weeks, see if it makes a difference. With the dairy, the same thing. I'm having more and more clients being extremely sensitive to it, and it just creates so much inflammation. And if your life at the end of the day better without it, then maybe it is worth living without cheese, but with no massive diarrhea and explosions. So then you kind of choose your priorities. And when it comes to endometriosis, the, the classic advice that we typically get is, get pregnant. You'll get pregnant, it gets better. Is that true? Is that something that we can tell to women? A lot of women actually experience the lower of pain after the yeah. pain. I don't know the mechanism behind it, but if you have, I would say if you have like stage three or four endometriosis, it won't probably stop the disease. Maybe we stop the pain, which is the worst part, but Probably it can still evolve and and create some adhesions between the the tissues. So like that's good if people don't have the pain, but there is other. So I I don't know if getting pregnant is like the cure. Sometimes it can help with the pain. If you want children anyway, go for it. Yeah, if you want to give me don't do it to cure it. Like if you don't want children, don't do it to cure endometriosis. <laughs> yeah, I'll find different options. And you also said that you're on the pill at the same time for it. Is that correct? Have you tried diff? I'm assuming. I mean, the fact that they put you on corporate is mad, given that it's going to give you crazier bleeds. Is it? Did they put you on it because they didn't know that you had endometriosis? Yeah, at the moment we didn't know I had endometriosis. Actually. Okay. Uh, Okay. The only natural periods I had were between like 13 and, and 17. And sometimes it can be more painful at that period and not necessarily because of endometriosis. Sometimes it's just like the cycle taking like his normal, like it can, it can take a few years to, to settle actually. So it, the same with PCOS, we don't really diagnose PCOS before 18 because sometimes the irregularity can just be natural because of teenager. So we actually didn't know, we just knew, knew that I had period pain and even under pill. But when I had actually the diagnosis and every lesion corresponded exactly to the symptoms I had, I was actually happy. I felt relieved. I was like, okay, I get why patients want a diagnosis now because it's just okay I'm not crazy I have mm -hmm. it I have exactly the lesion that corresponds to the symptoms I have that makes sense talk a bit about lesions corresponding to the symptoms are there different lesions and different symptoms and what do those look like actually the lesions are not fully related to the symptoms some people mm -hmm. have really small superficial endometriosis and really bad symptoms because a lot of inflammation and this grandfather some have really bad symptoms, really bad lesions, like really deep in the tissues and don't have any symptoms. So it's not fully re related to the state. We don't really understand it fully yet. And sometimes superficial endometriosis can 
after uh, putting your uh, lesion rest with the, for example, one of the hormones we use now, it can even disappear sometimes. So it's not fully related, but one of the lesions, for example, that gives the pain during intercourses is the uterosacral ligament at the back of the cervix and really in the, actually in the front of your vagina. So in certain positions, some people have really bad pain during sexual intercourse and these lesions typically correspond to the pain usually. There can also be like ovaries lesions, the endometriomes, the cysts, and it can be really bad ovulation pain, for example. And if you have lesion in the digestive part, or for example, my uh, sigmoid, my uh, intestine is uh, attached at some of the parts of my belly mm-hmm. and correspond to the, the pain I have when like a few minutes before going to the toilets, for example, like pain I mentioned that hold my breeze sometimes mm. and I it corresponds exactly to 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 this to this thing. And I think it's so important like just not feeling crazy because I think so many women sometimes like my body is broken, it's not working, I feel so terrible and then it can create feelings of guilt and shame and just downward spiral. But you said knowing it, knowing the diagnosis at least you able to advocate for yourself and gives you that power to be able to speak up, which is amazing. Do you hear that from the patients that you have currently? Do you find people come more with a bit of research? Of course, like diagnosing yourself through Google is probably one of the worst ideas, but do you get people that are know a little bit more or do you still people get to OBGYNs and there's still that fear of going to your gyno? I would say that most of people know more at the moment. That's what I see in patients. And that's a good thing. That means that endometriosis is really like more diagnosed, more seen. And so people actually come to know more about it and ask if they can take a test to it. The tricky thing about endometriosis is when it's very superficial, it can still give a lot of symptoms, but it can be missed on the MRIs, yeah. like the resolution cannot be enough to, to diagnose every endometriosis. So sometimes it can be like also disappointing because you get the MRI and they say, okay, there's nothing. So one advice I have is taking the MRI in a very well-trained center for endometriosis, like the radiologists that are really trained to see endometriosis. That's one of the first advice I would have to make a diagnosis i see that people know at least a little bit mm-hmm. or they didn't really know anything and also sometimes it's the opposite like i had a patient really young i think around 19 or 20 and she told me that she had really bad period cramps and mm-hmm. that she fainted from time to time because of the pain and she had to miss school. And I was like, okay, you might have endometriosis. We will do an MRI to check. And she was like, no, I don't think I have it because I've seen on TikTok women who has it, they throw up while they have periods. And I don't throw up. I was like, yeah, but you fainted. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love when people diagnose on TikTok. It's become a new thing, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so there is a lot of good content, but... Yeah. I think you have to still have a critical view and still mm-hmm. go to your gyno to like discuss the thing. And the funny thing is that this woman was with her mom actually, and her mom looked at her and I like, yeah, like listen to her. She's the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
Oh, that's so funny. So what are some of the common ways for people to diagnose endometriosis? Is it that crazy pain as the main symptom? Or, and then of course, for you to do the, like the, the radiology scan, or is there a different ways to know? Like at the moment, most relevant exam would be the MRI done by a specialist. And the symptoms that make you think about it would be very bad period pain, some digestive troubles, pain during intercourses, and it can be some other stuff happening during the pain, like really rare form of endometriosis that have like lesion in the lungs. It can also be a lot of tiredness, like headaches during the period and bloating, still symptoms. So when you have all of these, I would still recommend to take the MRI to just see if we can diagnose it, but if you have all these symptoms and nothing on the MRI, it doesn't may mean there is nothing. It probably just means that we are not able to diagnose it yet. I've, I don't know if it's on the market yet. I've read something about the saliva test that we can oh. take this women. Yeah, yeah, because there is micro NRA and a lot of different like profile. And they have a really good sensibility for the diagnosis of endometriosis. So I would say these women with like very evocative symptoms and nothing on the MRI would be good candidates to see in the saliva. And is it something that they do in Europe or across the globe? Yeah, I think it's very recent. I, I think it was on the market already in Germany, but I don't see it yet in a routine in France. That's okay. for sure. Yeah, I guess just like any new technology. Mm -hmm. It's very, like, very recent, but it's very promising. Yeah. And often when women go and see gyno for endo, the, the thing that gets advised as well is to do the surgery. What are your views on the surgery and cutting out the lesions? Is that the first plan of action or do you recommend approaching, trying different things? Because surgery can be very invasive for so many. One of the principles is that if you do surgery, you have to remove everything. So same as the radiology, you have to go with a very well-trained surgeon that knows really a lot about endometriosis and you have to remove everything if you remove it because if you leave one it will come back and sometimes surgery is not the best cure because the natural way your body is going to heal after surgery is also creating adhesions so maybe it won't be the adhesions of endometriosis anymore but you can still have symptoms from the lesions or from the the inflammation in your body so it's it's not perfect but it gives relief at a lot of women as well so like the first treatment is hormones but if you are trying to have a baby or like if you can't take hormones for any reason the surgery can be a good option mm -hmm. and if you want to have a baby, but it's not working, surgery gives better ch chance of natural pregnancy, like in the six months after the surgery, after removing it all. But it's always, in Western medicine, it's always like managing the balance between benefits and risk. Because as you mentioned, for example, if there is stage four endometriosis on your rectum or stuff like this, you might need, you might need the surgery super invasive with a poop pockets on your belly for a few months, the time for the healing. Wow. So it can be really, really invasive. So it's always a matter of discussing with a very 
trained surgeon and endometriosis doctor to see if it's the better option for you. And mm -hmm. at the beginning, like you always try hormonal treatment first. And when you say hormonal, you basically mean the pill or contraceptive? Contraceptive. Yeah, contraceptive pills or even the continuous progesterone pill, like that create a really low, the dienogest. It's a molecule we use specifically for endometriosis that really reduces the lesion and create a really hippo um, yeah. environment in your body. So there is other options. And is that, is that also a form of birth control? Yeah, yeah. It's also Great. birth control. Okay. Makes sense. And that's the thing with birth control. Sometimes there's so much controversy around birth control. And of course, if you're using it, it depending on the reasons and there isn't a right or wrong reason for each woman, but if it is creating such a big difference in your pain and in your life and allowing you not to overgrow the lesions. So basically, as you said, like your stomach and your ovaries get connected through tissue. It's certainly, I can definitely see the need for it and just how life-saving it can be for so many women. And that's really helping a lot of women. But the tricky thing is when we try like so many different ones and that not one is working, we can have surgical remove or trying every other medicine. I would say if you have a really advanced stage, it might not be enough or it might be as well a little bit dangerous because the lesion can outgrow and create mm. more lesions. And so for really small parts, of endometriosis, I wouldn't recommend to stop. We have to try either try different ones and if none of them works, surgery. Yes. But it's really superficial. You can probably manage it with natural treatment and different yeah. and that can really improve your yeah. pain. One last thing that I want to curious about endometriosis and will wrap up this topic of hopefully this given some information to women. The egg freezing for women with endometriosis, is that something that's possible? Yeah. It makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, it's still uh, possible. What can make it difficult can be the adhesions because sometimes the ovaries are hard to access for the function to get the eggs actually. But most of the time it's really accessible, really doable. It can be painful because of the adhesions. Like mm -hmm. I won't say it was a pleasure to do it, but mm -hmm. at least now I feel I, I'm kind of a relief for yeah. my future lives. If at some point I decide I want children, I have this option. And because endometriosis plus age can make it really difficult sometimes. Mm -hmm. What we also have to remember is that most of person with endometriosis actually have natural pregnancy. And that's because they just have normal ovulation and it's, it's technically not difficult. Like for example, with something like PCOS, you don't really have a normal ovulation, but whether with endometriosis, it's a bit more regular. That's why it's a natural pregnancy. Yeah, it's, but a lot of PCOS have natural pregnancies as well. It's yeah. always the same. Like there is a lot of PCOS and endometriosis that have natural pregnancy. It's not the same as the Actually, the infertility mechanism in endometriosis is the inflammation, the local inflammation that can be bad for implantation of the embryo. Or it can also be like the adhesions in your fallopians blocking everything and blocking the egg from coming. That's really interesting. There is this sort of notion whenever women go to gynecologists, there is a bit of that fear. And I hear that from people sometimes that I don't want to go to gyno because I'm scared. What can we tell to those women? 
Because of course, the regular, regular checkups are quite important. How do we eliminate that fear and what mindset shifts we perhaps can have to not be afraid of the doctors? I would recommend to maybe choose a particular gynecologist that you are recommended, for example, mm-hmm. that work with a lot of kindness. And I would say that most of gynecologists of my generation and the generation coming are more sensitive to not doing a useless exam, for example. And for example, the pap smear has been like, it's lighter now. So you don't have to have a full examination every time you go at the gyno. We just will focus on your symptoms and do only things that are necessary. So with talking, I I had a lot of first-time patients in my practice. And when you talk and explain what you do, I even show them the speculum, the side of it, how it works, using lube to insert it and all that stuff. And usually they're like, oh, that's it. So I would say that it's not that scary, Mm -hmm. uh, but I would recommend to choose a a doctor that you have heard about. Yeah. Because there is, unfortunately, still gynecologists practicing patriarchal and not very caring about pain of the patient. So it can bring really bad experience. And in my experience, some people like have a complete stop of follow-up during like five, 10 years because of bad experiences. So don't be scared. There is nice gyno and you don't, if you don't have hormonal treatment, if you don't have, if it's not the year of pap smear, if you don't have any symptoms, you don't need to go to gyno every year. Like sometimes you can just wait two years. Like you just need to go if you want to renew your hormonal treatment pill or anything. If you have questions, if you have troubles, but not necessarily every year. If no issues. Mm-hmm. So the reason like go to gyno every year thing, it's not necessarily that. It's maybe every couple of years for pap smear, is it in Europe recommendation? Thanks to the detection of HPV now, mm-hmm. it's actually 25, 26 years old. And if everything's normal, it's every five years after 30. We are really getting better at detecting and the lesions are really slow to appear. So now it's every five years, the first year. And I would recommend also to, after you're 25, to self-breast exam. There is a lot of tutorial you can find online. And like we have shown that regular self-breast exam is actually more efficient than one year uh, gynecological uh, exam of your breast. And there's something that is there like a YouTube videos where people just Google breast exams and it's something that will pop up. Yeah, self-breast exam would be, yeah, I, I think you can, thanks to like the month, the October months of awareness, you can find a lot mm-hmm. of content about it. Definitely. To wrap up, of course, I know you do a lot of stuff as the doctor and thank you so much for the stuff that you do and for gentle approach because I think it's so incredible. And from the stance of like the personal projects, I wanted you to mention a couple of things that you actually have in the pipeline as far as working, like truly your passion for women's health that is outside maybe of the doctor's office. Yes, I have a podcast in French, bring awareness about uh, societal issue. Mir and health, the expat and migrant health. I have this project in Lisbon, a women health club, where we do meetings to bring awareness about like, gynecological and women health issues and we are in a few months launching a platform as well to get scientific content but also the goal of 
building bridges between not only Western gynecology, but also societal and holistic medicine that we can adapt. Like it's not opposite at all. <laughs> no, they support us with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's so amazing. That's amazing, Matilda. And we'll definitely, we'll have the links for the ways to, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to participate either in the club if they're Lisbon or to reach to you through social media? Are you quite active? Yeah, you can reach me on Planet Fam Podcast account. I'm always checking my DMs or don't hesitate. Amazing. And we'll link that in the show notes so people are able to go in and, and click on it. And I just want to really to thank you to spending the time with me today because I think there's we went really deep into endo and I have a lot of clients with endometriosis. I have a lot of women that are reaching out to me about endometriosis. So I think this is going to be invaluable for them just to understand that in fact there is hope from natural solutions but also that going to the doctors is not that scary and in which case you can go so it's really giving women that empowerment so thank you so much and thank you too for what you do and thank you for having me I hope that you enjoyed this chat and learned as much as I did. And if you found this episode helpful, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with other women who might benefit from it. I always love hearing from you about the things that you found useful. And if you did find something specific useful, please head over to the Instagram and DM me some of your biggest aha moments at dinara.mukh. And I want to mention that if you are dealing with endometriosis, if you're struggling with pain on a monthly basis that's quite literally pulls you out of commission and you want to treat it naturally, schedule a health consultation with me through the show notes. There is a link in order to be able to schedule it. It is free. And over the Zoom chat, over our time together, we'll be able to talk in depth about your health goals so I can give you some guidance as to what you can do and tell you how I can help. Thank you. Until next time.